Welcome to the Program Director Podcast with Logan. I'm your host, Logan, a medical student, where I feature different graduate medical education leadership personnel to discuss all things Program Director related. This podcast is affiliated with the University of Minnesota Graduate Medical Education Office. The content and opinions discussed on this podcast are meant for informational purposes only. Thank you for listening today. On today's episode, I discuss program evaluation committees. Every ACGME program must have a program evaluation committee, which consists of faculty and residents appointed by the program director. The committee functions in compliance with both the common program and program-specific requirements and oversees curriculum development and program evaluations for its respective graduate medical education training program. Here with us today to talk more about program evaluations, we have Dr. Culliken a pediatric ophthalmologist and the designated institution officer for the University of Minnesota Graduate Medical Education Programs. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Culkin. Sure thing. Happy to be here. Yeah, and we're glad that you're on too. So let's first talk about the structure of the Program Evaluation Committee. The ACGME requires that the committee be comprised of a minimum of two core faculty members with at least one resident, all of which are appointed by the program director. What values or traits should the program director be looking for when appointing new members? So it'll vary a little bit by program, depending on program complexity, program size, and how many sites they go to. You definitely want to pick the faculty who are committed to resident education, which is usually pretty easy. You usually have a core, the core faculty are core faculty because of that commitment. But let's take, for example, some of the programs at the University of Minnesota, where they go to the VA, they go to Regents Hospital, they'll go to Hennepin Health, they'll go to the University of Minnesota Medical Center, and there are many, many sites where they rotate. In that case, you may want to appoint core faculty from each of those sites to represent the training in the program that occurs at those sites. So, for example, when I was a program director, I had three major sites that I went to, and we had core faculty from each of those sites represented in the program evaluation committee. Awesome. And so with those rotations, should those faculty be just from core rotations or could they be from off-service rotations also? They could be from anything. Typically, the core rotations get the most exposure and experience, but that varies by program as well. There may be, say, an elective rotation at a site that 80% of your residents choose to take advantage of. And whether or not you continue to send trainees to that site solely for an elective purpose may depend a lot on the educational opportunity that it provides. And so having that person on the PEC to advise and recommend curricular content is valuable to the program. And is there like a max number of people that you can appoint to a committee? There's no maximum. So the advice that I give people when they're constructing a program evaluation committee is the bigger the committee gets, the harder it is to get any work done. So you do want to be cognizant of getting too big. Having said that, I know of plenty of program evaluation committees that actually invite all of their residents to participate and all of their faculty to participate with the minimum being the core faculty and the one resident rep that are required. And they basically manage it more like what we would have referred to in our program as an education forum. So we did have those style meetings, but we had them separate from the PEC and then had the minutes of those meetings inform the PEC as they were reviewing the program effectiveness. So getting the feedback from a larger group of faculty and residents is a valuable uh, exercise. But whether that has to be in the context of your actual PEC or not is totally dependent on the program, the program director, and what historically they've done. So there are multiple ways of, of doing that. 
Yeah, so that's a pretty interesting take on it. Have you ever found like one way is the best way? No, I think it's mostly culture. I found for our program, I'm a firm believer in transparency of around documentation and metrics that we're using to gauge educational effectiveness. So our program evaluation committee was fairly small. It had the chairman of the department, me as the program director, and also representing the Children's Hospital. David Volman, who was the associate program director and also the chief of service at the VA hospital. And then our resident was, you know, rotating, but they would become the chief resident the following year and the chief resident who taught at the university medical center. So that covered all three of our sites and it was fairly small and all leadership of some kind with the exception of the resident representative. And that was very effective because what we could do is share very explicit evaluation data around say faculty performance, which faculty were doing really, really well and which faculty were not doing really, really well. And then have frank conversations about what do we do about those faculty? Are they amenable to some kind of remediation? Do we need to pull trainees from their clinics? You know, how do we manage that? And you wouldn't be able to have that frank conversation in a group of all of your faculty and all of your residents because you would have anonymity issues around sharing evaluation. But in a very small evaluation committee, you could absolutely justify getting down and dirty with all of the data in a way that was very effective to manage your program effectiveness. Yeah. So then if there's a disagreement among an equal amount of the committee, who is the final say? That's a very good question. We never really had a disagreement. We had a committee that was just very committed to making the program as strong as it could be. You know, ultimately around things like faculty remediation, that falls to the chair because faculty discipline and things like that are a chair's responsibility, which is partly why we had the chair on that committee, because me reporting back to the chair that faculty so-and-so is problematic is not as useful as spreading that data out on a table and all five of us going through it with a fine-tooth comb. It's very hard to not see what the others see when you're in the room at the same time. So it was a very good partnership for us to have the chair involved. And it also keeps the chair very engaged with the educational program. You know, there were four things a year, five things a year, if you counted graduation, that he had to come to. He had to go to those three education forums of the big group with the residents and the faculty three times a year. And he had to go to the program evaluation committee and he had to go to graduation. Those were the five things that we required him to attend. And then he could come to anything else he wanted to at, at any time throughout the year. But those were the critical pieces to making sure that you had an effective program and that you were supporting the learners. And he did so, yeah, I say he, but multiple he's. I had two chairmen while I was there, and both of them did so with absolute interest in making the program a spectacular one. Awesome. Yeah. And it sounds like they were invested in the program. So if a program director feels that this person should be part of the program evaluation committee because they know they can contribute a lot like the chair, but maybe that person that they invite doesn't want to join or is too busy, how do they kind of navigate that relationship and maybe get that person or get somebody in that same role to join? That's a really good question. That's sort of the crux of leadership, isn't it? <laughs> it's convincing people to do things they don't want to do and making them think it was their idea to do it. So it's a little bit of finesse and making the point that this is a really critical piece. Maybe they don't have to go to all the education forum meetings, but they do have to go to the program evaluation committee where we review the data from the education forum meetings. Our program evaluation committee meeting was a long one. We spent three hours going through every single piece of data from last year and from this year and comparing the two. 
And it was a long list of data. And we'll get into that later in the podcast. But because of that, it was a little commitment on the part of the chair. And he always made us split it over an hour and a half and then a lunch and then an hour and a half. That's how he had to be able to do it. That's fine. We can do it that way. Gives everybody a little breather in the middle. But he committed to those three hours a year. I don't think that's unreasonable for a chair to commit to uh, in a yearly basis to make sure that the program is excellent. And I think most chairs really are engaged and interested. It's just a matter of making it work within their schedule. So it's the program director's job to figure out what do I need to do to make this fit into his busy schedule as opposed to beating my head against the wall trying to make him fit into mine. Yeah, definitely. Should a new committee be chosen every year or once the members are appointed, do they just stay on for the entire time with their program? So I'm a big fan of rotating. So as I mentioned, the chief resident on ours was a, and and chief resident for our program was a fourth year chief. So they stayed on an additional year after training. So they were actually a faculty level appointment. So that was an additional faculty member. And then the resident was the incoming chief resident. The incoming chief resident was on the committee for two years, the year they were a senior resident, and then the year that they were the chief. The chief resident then rotated off after they completed their year of chief resident. And unless they joined the faculty, they're not going to be associated with the program anymore. The director at the VA actually changed during my tenure. And so we had a new director of the VA rotate in when Dr. Bowman stepped down. And then I left to come to the University of Minnesota and we got a new program director. And the chairman, as I mentioned, changed twice since I was at the university. So There's some consistency and there's some natural turnover. Like I said, that chief years, there's a two-year cycle in there. And that's very good because you want to have some consistency across because you're comparing your progress from prior years. So constant self-improvement. The last thing you want to do is get into a situation where you've made this change. It's doing pretty well. Three or four years go on. Now the resident, I'll give an example is curriculum. We did this three times in my 15-year tenure there. We don't like the block schedules. We don't want to do all of pediatrics for a month and then all of cornea for a month and then all of glaucoma for a month, because then if we didn't take pediatrics until the later part of the year, then we didn't, but we rotated on the service. We didn't know what we were doing until April. And we say, okay, and we'd split up all the lectures and we'd intersperse them all through the year. And then three years later, a new group would come in that wasn't there when we made the change and says, we don't like this distributed model. We want it all in block schedule. And so three different times in my tenure as program director, we switched. And I just tell the faculty, okay, dust off the way that we used to do it three years ago because we're going back to that because that's what the residents want. And if you don't have that longitudinal history, messaging that to the faculty who get frustrated about having to change all the time because the content isn't really different. It's the distribution and the production of the content can be very frustrating for faculty. So being able to message that in a way that makes sense to them needs that longitudinal view. And so there has to be some consistency. But turnover is good too. Because if you don't have diversity of ideas and you don't have diversity of perspective, then you're not going to be able to make the best decisions about how to implement a change when something is not working. So it's a little bit of both and. Similarly, in our clinical competency committee, everyone had a three-year term. And that was intentional because you the residents were there for three years. You wanted someone to be on that committee from the time they started until the time they graduated. And then the next person could rotate in. So there was at least two people on the committee at every time who saw them from the day they started until the day they left. Have you ever had a problem or do you know of anybody that's ever had a problem with maybe a committee member really not doing what they should be doing on the committee? So I have not. And I think that is because I had a very small, tight committee with very intentional membership. I suspect with the larger committees, this gets more complicated. But with a small committee, it's very easy for the program director to manage that. 
And so I never encountered that problem with my committee. But again, that goes back to the larger your committee, the more degrees of freedom, the more opportunities there are either for difficult players or for people that just don't have the bandwidth to actually contribute to the cause. Right. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like there's a delicate balance in there. So the program director can serve as chair on the program evaluation committee. Is it smart for the program director to be the chair or maybe even be on the committee? Yeah, that depends on your perspective. And I think it could go either way. In my very small program, I was really the only person in the room who was knowledgeable of all of the ACGME requirements. If you have a bigger program that has lots of APDs, and the APDs are as cognizant and knowledgeable as the program director about the ACGME and RC requirements, there's nothing wrong with appointing that person as the committee chair. The smaller programs with less expertise are going to be in trouble, I think, if they don't have that person with that expertise on the program evaluation committee. So it's just going to have to be a matter of who your faculty are, what their knowledge and expertise is, and what their willingness to serve in that capacity is. Right. And so when I talked earlier about kind of the purpose of the program evaluation committee in the introduction here, it was to make sure the program is compliant with common program and program-specific requirements, and some of their responsibilities to ensure that are addressing areas of noncompliance, reviewing evaluations, planning, developing, implementing, and evaluating the program's education activities, and a multitude of others. And so it kind of sounds to me like it's another program director, but just in a committee format. Is there a specific focus that the program evaluation committee should always discuss when they meet? Yeah. So the number one thing that you should be addressing is your most recent ACGME resident and faculty survey. That is what the ACGME is going to use as the measuring stick for how well you're performing as a program. And so any areas that are out of compliance on that survey have to be number one, two, and three on your program evaluation committee agenda. You know, hopefully, depending on when your program evaluation committee meets and it can meet six months after you got your notification letter from the ACGME. It can meet the week before. It can meet the week after. It's hard to know. But wherever you meet, you should definitely be prepared to address those areas of noncompliance. In our program, we actually met around the same time that the surveys were actually coming out for faculty and residents to do. So they were almost a year old by the time our program evaluation committee met. We just met in February because it was after the match and we had the bandwidth to do it then. But we reviewed all of those survey non-compliant areas in our education forum, that big group with all the residents and all the faculty. Prior to that, in the two meetings before, we actually had our program evaluation committee. So we had two meetings worth of minutes on those areas of non-compliance before the PEC even met. So we should have had, if we were effective in our education forum meeting, a strategy and a plan to address them. And it, depending on how complex or how simple it was, maybe even follow-up data to say that we've already addressed this concern, it's been resolved, this is what's going on, this is the data we're looking at to make sure it's, it's working. So those have to be the top of your agenda. Obviously, if there are other things you're trying to accomplish, for example, in ophthalmology, they made a new requirement that you had to have a PGY one year that was either joint or integrated that was going to happen three years out. We had a strategy in our PEC to look at how we were going to implement that requirement once it became a requirement. It wasn't even a requirement yet, but that's the kind of thing that takes quite a bit of planning. You can't just do that overnight. And so we spent quite a bit of time in our PEC looking at where we had issues around 
accelerating in, in our program in particular, it was procedural volume earlier in residency training. So what experiences could we give a PGY-1 so that when they came in as a PGY-2 to ophthalmology, they could hit the ground running as opposed to having to start at ground zero in PGY-2. And so that was something that we talked about in the PEC for two years before we even implemented that program. So those are the kinds of things that you want to be thinking about. You know, what's coming down the pike? Where do we stand right now? Do we have any areas for improvement or areas of concern on the last letter from the ACGME? Do we have any citations? Citations should be addressed immediately as soon as they appear on the letter. All of those things should be right up at the top. Yeah. And though, so kind of also backing up a little bit, is there a certain amount of times that the program evaluation committee should meet throughout the year? Yeah. So I don't think the PEC meeting timing matters that much. I'm a firm believer that there need to be meetings on a regular basis. So as I mentioned, we had quarterly education forum meetings and then a once a year PEC. So it's effectively, I say five meetings a year, almost always one of those quarterly meetings got canceled because it was over the summer and people are on vacation or whatever. So effectively three of those plus a PEC. But every three months we were meeting to talk about program health. And that's in a small program of 15 residents. If you're in a bigger program, you probably need to be meeting monthly because there are more degrees of freedom and more things that could go wrong. How you do that, whether you have multiple PEC meetings or you have something like an education forum meeting that informs the PEC meeting is really up to the structure and culture of your program. But absolutely, you need to be meeting more than once a year. Once a year for a small fellowship with one fellow is fine. But once a year for a program with multiple trainees that are going to multiple sites is going to be insufficient. And you're going to be caught really late trying to make changes that needed to be made earlier. Yeah. And so when I was learning about program evaluations and I looked at all their tons of roles and responsibilities they hold, I was thinking, you know, if I was a new program director, how would I even know exactly what a program evaluation is doing and how should it be done if maybe I wasn't part of one or I was just part of one for a little bit? So as a program director, how do you ensure that the program evaluation committee is doing what they're supposed to be doing? So the first thing I would recommend is reach out to your DIO, your associate dean of graduate medical education. That's what they exist for, is to support program directors in all things compliance. So they should be able to help guide you as to whether you're actually covering the right content in your PEC. It's very possible that if you're a new program director, that the prior program director has appointed people to the PEC that have been on it for a while and will be able to help you because they've sat through the process a number of times before. And then you'll have to do an assessment about whether this is an effective process or not once you're on there. But you know, certainly meeting with your DIO and going through, okay, this is what I think I'm going to do. This is how I think I'm going to do it. This is what our structure is. This is what our complement is. You know, What do you think is one way. I can tell you that when I started as a new DIO, at least three different programs invited me to sit on their program evaluation committee, not as a voting member, but just to sit in and see how it plays out, to be able to offer both insight to me about what their programs are doing, so I have knowledge of what the programs are doing at a new institution, and to ask for my advice about is there anything that we should be covering that we're not. And I found that extremely valuable as a new DIO, and I hope that they found my feedback to them valuable as well. Yeah, I was just about to ask that question too, so I'm glad that you brought it up. And so I feel like we could just spend hours talking about program evaluation committee responsibilities, but it sounds like it all kind of boils down to the annual program evaluation that must be written by the program evaluation committee. 
to address all the roles and responsibilities that they do. And then that annual program evaluation committee has to be sent to the local graduate medical education office. So being the DIO, do you get to review these documents? Yeah. So we have what we call the AIR, the Annual Institutional Review Survey, that we send to all programs in the summertime. And every single program is required to complete that document. It's a very long survey. I want to say it's got like 89 questions on it, but it covers all of the core program requirements for all of the core training programs. And the answers to those questions can serve as the basis of your to-do list for your PEC. So generally, the APE is drafted by the central GME office because the DIO has to review all of that data. And having a consistent format in which the data comes in makes it just simpler for the DIO to do that. What we need to clearly articulate to our programs is that the AIR survey, which is called AIR, Annual Institutional Review Survey, is an APE for the program. So if you print out your survey results, that counts as an APE for your program because it's got all of the core requirements for your program in the same document and what your responses to those questions are. So you can use that as the basis of your APE. The format that we had where I came from was a little bit different. It really looked more like a self-study where the last three or four questions were, it would auto-populate what you put in last year when you said, these are the three items I wanna be working on between now and next year. The first question was, Where do you stand on that? Is it in progress? Is it not yet started? Is it completed? And then the next question was, what are your three goals for next year? So it really looked more like a self-study. Ours is really more the content. And then you can take that content for the basis of your APE and write your own goals and objectives for the upcoming years. And there is a little bit of that information in the survey. It's just less less clearly pre-populated so that you know what you said last year without having to go back to last year's document. And so does that survey also have kind of smart logic in a way where it reminds them of things that they need to include in the AP? Correct. Yeah. All of the key core requirements are in the survey. And so do you find any deficiencies in the AIRs when you get them? Yep. <laughs> there's always deficiencies. So even in a great program, there's going to be deficiencies. So I, you know, not to brag or whatever, but I thought my program was spectacular. And despite it being spectacular, every year I had a long list of things I needed to do to improve the program. And my prior chair always said, you're like a professional football team. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. You're never staying the same. So, you know, we wanted to get better. So that was what our job was. So I don't think that that's necessarily a ding on a program that there's deficiencies. The key is being able to identify the deficiencies and creating a plan to improve them. This is continuous improvement. It's quality assurance. It's really not about, do I get an A on the test? You get an A on the test if you found the error. It's like patient safety, right? So I think that needs to be the approach is that we're not afraid of finding the weak places. Our goal is to be a a bloodhound and sniff them out and then address them. So yes, they do. But really what I'm looking for is how are you going to address the deficiency? I don't care that I found the deficiency. What I'm looking for is, did you find the deficiency and do you have a strategy to remediate it? Yeah. So then with the AIRs or the APEs, are there common maybe errors that you find a lot? I think there's a lot of, and I think this is human nature. There's a lot of sort of excuse making. I'll just give one example. There was a deficiency in in one of our procedural specialties that had not enough of a certain kind of procedure. So the procedural specialties have surgical logs. They have to 
record all of the surgeries they do. And there was one particular area where they were deficient. They weren't getting enough of this particular surgical procedure. And in response to that finding, the program wrote, well, you know, we had COVID and it's a COVID problem and it'll get better when COVID is over. The problem was that the data that they were using to cite that was from the year before COVID because everything is on an annual cycle. You put the logs in, they close out in July. You don't get the letter until February or March. And then they make the response in April, but this was from the year before. So that's really not paying attention. And you need to go back. This was actually prior to COVID. There actually is a deficiency in this domain. And what are you going to do to address it? And COVID is only going to exacerbate that problem. You know, so that's the kind of thing that I see is that just sort of thinking you have an, an answer for it without really diving into why is it there. And I think that's human nature. Oh, I know why that is. Well, do you? Did you ask the residents? Did you really review your data? You know, did you ask the faculty? Oh, it turns out the faculty member who was doing 80% of those cases left to go to another institution. And we have since hired a new faculty member, but that was after COVID. And so there's this gap in between. And that's the answer to the problem, right? Um, So I think just being superficial in your response is the biggest problem that I see. Other than you being the DIO and the huge resource for all the programs to reach out to, are there other resources that the Graduate Medical Education Office offers for program directors or program evaluation committees to utilize? Yeah, yeah. So we have both Michael Cullen and Ben Seltzer who can help programs access their data. So we have multiple dashboards of data that the residents provide, the faculty provide, and the program itself provides, and they can help a data navigator from the program evaluation committee learn how to manipulate those dashboards so that they can understand where they should be focusing their attention. We have Carolyn Hildebrandt in the office, who is our organizational development specialist, and she will partner with programs to help them both identify and to address areas of concern. She can meet individually with residents alone, with faculty alone, without program leadership there. So in the hopes of being able to get some pretty straightforward and pointed commentary back on where the problems really are, if people are concerned about expressing them in a more identified manner. And she can, because she's an organizational development specialist, sit down and talk about the change management approaches that it'll take to address some of these things. Because there are plenty of problems that just have to get fixed. And they're going to be painful and they're going to be messy. But once you're over the hump, things are so much better. And that is a very careful skill that Carolyn's very good at. And she's available to partner with programs to work on those kinds of things. Yeah, I definitely got a lot of people there to help out these programs. Is there a way that they can get in touch with them? Yep. So the best way to approach anybody is just gme at umn.edu. That comes into our front mailbox and we have somebody that monitors that box and they will send them off accordingly. So if it's a Ben Seltzer question, they'll send it to Ben. If it's a Carolyn issue, they'll send it to Carolyn. If it's a me issue, they'll send it to me. But we have someone in our office who actually designates the emails to the right person. So you don't even have to worry about that. And you can always pick up the phone and call us and have a consultation. We'd be happy to have that conversation. Awesome. And is there anything else that maybe we didn't discuss that you'd like to point out or emphasize? Yeah, the program evaluation committee is doing the work of making your self-study easier. So all programs have to do a self-study at some point. Every 10 years, supposedly COVID's messed that up a little bit, but in general, every 10 years you're doing a self-study. And if your program evaluation committee is doing its job and doing it well, that self-study is a breeze because all you have to do is go back through your last 10 years worth of APEs, APEs, and 
spell out from this year to this year, we did this from this year to this year, we did that from this year to this year, we did this. And you've got it spelled out exactly what your trajectory has been to get to where you are right now. And then you just identify from your program evaluation committee, what your plan over the next 18 months is going to be, which is what they're asking you for. So the 10 year self-study sounds like a daunting thing, but if the PEC is doing its job, well, it's a breeze. Yep, definitely. And that's another episode that we're actually going to talk about in our next episode. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Culligan, for discussing program evaluation committees with me. And of course, on our next episode, we'll both meet again and talk about how the program evaluation committee can prepare for the self-study, just like you mentioned. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening today. This podcast was produced by Logan. For more episodes and other program director-related content, visit z.umn.edu forward slash program director.